We will be picking up where Josh left off. We needed that passage to remember last week because today is part two, okay? And if you remember the sermon title, if you weren't here last week, that was a great review. The title of the sermon is When All Hell Breaks Loose. How do you prepare for that? So I've told this story one other time. I want to tell it again because I, I, I happened to come across it this week, and it, to me it feel, felt like it fit. And I, I believe it's a true story that happened in England um, not that long ago. Uh, a, young, a, girl, a young girl had a rare blood disease and, or had had a disease, in, and her blood type was rare. That's what was rare, not the blood disease. But the, she had a disease, and really the only way she was going to be cured from this disease was if she got a blood transfusion from somebody with the same blood type that had survived the disease, okay? So it tur- she had a rare blood type. It turns out her brother had the same blood type. He was also young. And so in the consultation, they asked the, the brother, would you give your sister your blood so that she could fight the disease off and survive? And he hesitated. And then he said, for my sister, I'll do that. And so they arrange the beds next to each other, and they hook them up so that, and they stick him with the needle, and the blood begins to flow from him to her. And she's already pale, and now he's starting to get pale, and he's starting to feel the effects of losing the blood. And at some point, after a while, he he just says, Doctor, um, when will I die? Yeah, he was willing to give his life. He didn't understand that he wasn't going to have to give all his blood. But he went there, and he said yes. Now, Jesus knew what he was getting into, as we're going to see in this passage, and we've already been seeing. Because of his watch and pray mentality and because of his lifestyle of surrender and holding those two in tension, he was able to go to the cross and not give in to the temptation to find another way. He prayed for another way right? How many times have we prayed a prayer and it feels like God doesn't want to answer that prayer? Or maybe that he doesn't even hear that prayer. And we're like, oh, it's because God wants sometimes us to get to the place where we're willing to say like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Of course, this all started in the Garden of Eden where they said, not your will, but ours be done. And here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the olive press, where the olive trees would be harvested and the oil would be pressed out of those olives Jesus is being pressed, being pressed and tempted to give in. And he, he prays through that. His disciples, they fall asleep. And so we pick up in verse 46, and we'll just keep going to the end of the chapter. And there's a lot of text here that we're going to move through, a lot of action. So um, what I'm hoping is that we're going to double down on last week. That we're going to look at these, how do I prepare is the question. How do I prepare when all hell breaks loose? How do I prepare for that day? How do I prepare for that eventuality? And some of you have already been there. And you know what it's like to not be prepared. I'll give you my story. So it was 1999. Uh, Anita was very pregnant with our fourth daughter, Emma. And it was Sunday morning, and she said, we got to go to the hospital. And I'm like, all oh, right, we're missing church. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we went, we got in the car, and we drove the 20 minutes to Nash General Hospital. And, we, we, and they put her in a wheelchair, just like they should have, and they wheeled her into an office. I'm already not happy, okay? 
because the last time daughter number three came just 25 minutes after we arrived at the hospital. So I'm thinking, you know, every time it's a little quicker, let's see, let's do the math. Less than 25 minutes from now, there's going to be a baby and you're wheeling us into the office. But okay, I'll play your little game. And so she says, as she sits at the desk and types on her little computer, now what's your name? What's your address? I'm not happy. What's your phone number? I'm now speaking to her in a way that is not kind, okay? I am not prepared for that moment very well, okay? And so I speak to her very, very firmly that she needs to get into a hospital room because she's going to have a baby. And she humors the dad who has, you know, is, is in the place that I'm in, and she gets her to a room. And hours later, she delivers Emma. Not my best moment. So somewhere in there, since I had plenty of time, I had to go down and apologize to her. <laughs> Fortunately, she was very merciful. We are going to find ourselves in situations much worse than that, much more stressful than that, and we're going to wonder, how do I prepare so that I don't give in to those temptations? And so let's look at the text. We heard um, in Josh's reading, he, he left off in verse 46, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay. So, verse 47, while he's still speaking. Now, remember where they are. They're in the, on the Mount of Olives in, uh, at night. It's, it's not Thursday night anymore. It's Friday morning. It's probably 2. I have in my Bible somewhere along the way I picked up 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't know. That, nobody really knows, but... That's, that's a ballpark. It's early, early, early in the morning. And let's, let's get our geography. I learned a little bit more about the geography. So if this is east and this is west, actually, this is east and this is west. Pretty close. So uh, the Mount of Olives is over here. Jerusalem is on a plateau here. And there's a valley between them called the Kidron Valley. And on the edge of Jerusalem, on the eastern, eastern edge of Jerusalem is the temple. And so the disciples had left, they had the upper room, they were in the upper room, they did the Last Supper, they traveled down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and so they're on the west side of the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, okay? Something I didn't know until this week, apparently there's a drain, there was a drain from the temple into, the va into that valley, and the drain was for the blood from the sacrifices, that's how they got rid of it. Well, there in the middle of this festival of unleavened bread, seven days of people bringing lambs and sacrificing, they estimated 200,000 lambs would have been slaughtered in that week. Of course, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is the one that matters. They're all pointing to him. And so this is the, this is the picture, right? As they walk down from the... I don't know that they could see it, though. It would have been really dark. But there would have been blood in the in the water, or they would have stepped over or over a bridge of some, and I don't know, they, they could have seen it with the torchlight, but there's blood in the water. There's blood in the ditch. There's blood in the valley. And this wasn't the first time they would have gone there to pray, because that's how Judas knew this is where they'll probably be, because he likes to go there and pray. So with him, so while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples arrived, that is in the garden where he expected to find Jesus. 
With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. The, the clues here are the swords indicate there's Roman soldiers, clubs indicate there's Jewish temple soldiers, and there's a whole, there's probably a mob attached to this. Some estimate there could have been as many as 600 people. There are a lot of people coming because Jesus has gotten away a few times already. I mean, like he's been on the edge of a cliff and the whole village that he grew up in was ready to stone him and he just walks right straight through them and nobody stops him because they, they don't, somehow he's able to do that. That's just one example. So they're sending a lot of people. They're going to make sure we're not going to let him slip through our fingers this time. Well, that's because God said his time and he let him. So, uh, so you have the uh, crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from, here's who's sending them, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the elders of the people of Israel. Okay, so these are the religious leaders of Israel that are sending them to do this, uh, to do this travesty of injustice. Now, the betrayer, that would be Judas, has ar- had arranged a signal for them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. Notice he didn't say, Greetings, Lord. Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Okay, let's, let's catch up a bit. Let me just say a couple of thoughts. First of all, customary for men to greet with a kiss in that day, and it's still in some many countries today, okay? And I'll just, if you're on a mission trip, guys in particular, just kind of heads up, sometimes it was all square on the lips. So you just kind of have to know in the mission field when to just turn at the last minute so they catch that cheek. You don't have to do that lips on lips plant with the other guy that you've never met. Um, but there, that is, that would have been a, a common way to greet. But think about what he's doing. He's received money to betray this one he's been sitting under, who he keeps calling rabbi, for three-plus years. This one he thinks is going to lead Israel to, uh, to deliver Israel from the oppressor that is Rome. And he's realized that's not happening because that's not the way he's going to do this. And he can't, he can't deal with that. And so he takes money to betray him, and he uses it with the most intimate of greetings, a kiss. Now, Jesus knows this is going to happen, and Jesus responds accordingly, and he says, do what you came to do for friend. Friend is not the intimate friend Greek word. It's more of an acquaintance. It's basically him acknowledging, I realize we're not where we were. I would like to see that change. I wish you would repent even now, but here we are. So Judas leads this mob to arrest Jesus. Then the men stepped forward seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know the companion is Peter, because if we read John's account, we learn it's Peter. And the servant actually had a name, Malchus. We also know from Luke that Jesus healed the man's ear. Put it back on right there. No cosmetic surgery needed. He just popped it on and everything's good. 52. I mean, I don't want to blow by that, like, like that miracle is no big deal. It is Jesus' last miracle before the resurrection. We'll count that as a miracle, of course. But it's the last healing he does before he leaves. Everyone put, he, he um, well, actually he says, um, put your sword back in its place, Jesus. Now, I'm not going down this road, but I will say this. He did say put, he basically said holster your weapon. He didn't say get rid of it. So, you know, let's not talk about pacifism, but Jesus also said, turn the other cheek. So if you want to have a discussion about that later, I'm all get ears, but I want to stay on the track of this, this tension that we're managing. 
How do I prepare? How do I prepare when all hell breaks loose? It's these two extremes of surrender, living a life that's surrendered. It's a posture and watching and praying. Remember we saw, we just heard Josh read that Jesus was in the garden and he knows he's going to be tempted to give in to this temptation to do it some other way, to not follow through. And so he prays and he tells James, uh, Peter, James, and John, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And so this is our job. Our job, our, our practice is to watch and pray. This is what we're supposed to do the rest of our lives as we live as people who are surrendered already. Okay. Well, I knew I was a believer. I was on staff at a church when I was in that hospital, not surrendering to the Holy Spirit as I talked to that church, that uh, hospital administrator. Okay. I don't even think I'd prayed for that piece of the day because I probably didn't think to. Okay. Watch and pray. Holy Spirit actually guides our prayers, but live surrendered. Right. If you just live surrendered and you don't watch and pray then we're not doing our part. We're not cooperating. And if we just watch and pray without a surrendered posture, then we're, we're, doing, we're trying to do it as if we don't need God. And obviously those extremes are dangerous. It's both and. And I think you're just seeing what here is, Pete, is that Jesus is prepared because he's done those two things. And he's going to prove he's surrendered because he's going to give his life. That's the ultimate, the ultimate, right? Put your sword back in its place. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And that's a principle. It's not a promise. Okay. And now, you know, you can insert gun there or any other weapon. Okay. Um, and he moves on. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion was 5,000 plus or minus soldiers. So that's 60,000 angels. And I guarantee you it would only take one to deal with this crew. I mean, we watch these DC and Marvel movies and we see these superheroes. You know, we, we like that in part because we know that exists. We just don't call them angels. We call them Superman or whatever. But what they can do... So he says, I'm not defenseless. Peter's trying to defend Jesus. He's trying not to deny Jesus. I love it. Spirit is willing, but Jesus reminded us the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. And, G and Peter will prove that Jesus is, was accurate in that as well. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Here he goes again that say it must happen this way. Over and over and over in the book of Matthew, Jesus points to the Old Testament as his authority for everything he prophesies. He keeps pointing back to the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and he says, as it is written, just as it was prophesied, it's going to happen, and it happens over and over and over again. Over a hundred prophecies just about Jesus himself are in the Bible that are fulfilled. And, and that would have been said, well, I'm not sure which one he's referring to here, so I, don't, I guess I don't know when. Um, be fulfilled, let's say it must happen this way. And, and that was his conclusion after praying in the garden, right? If there's any other way, Lord, to make this cup, you know, any other way, yet not my will but yours be done. Okay? And that cup were pointing to the wrath of God that was poured out on him on the cross where he died for us so that we could live for him. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, so, you know, they're all there. They're, they're closing in. Am I leading a rebellion 
that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, here he goes, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Okay, now Jesus actually wanted that to happen. He actually, in the book of John, we see he tells um, the crowd, he says, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, I am he, I'm him. And, and he's basically saying, let the rest of them go because you're here for me. Let them go. So Jesus wants them to flee, but they're fleeing because they're scared. Because they know by association, if he hangs on a cross, it's easy to justify for them to hang on a cross. They're his most trusted, closest followers. So they run for their lives. They will show the transformation that occurs once you understand the gospel and believe. Because they will go from cowards to incredibly brave martyrs as all but John will die for their faith without denying Christ. Because they will say, I've seen the risen Lord. I know it's not a lie. And I'm willing to die for what I saw. Now, we don't have that benefit, right? We weren't there. We didn't see Jesus walking around after he was crucified. But they did, and over 500 other people did too. And those people are why we're here today, because their testimonies have rung through and, and, and shown out since for the last 2,000 years. And it is your testimony and my testimony that will help the next generations believe. That's why we need to be in this, and we need to be sharing it, not just reading it, not just sitting and listening to it, but praying through it and immersing our minds and our hearts in it. Jesus was, in a sense, leading a rebellion, but not the kind of rebellion he says here. I, am I leading a rebellion? He's not leading the kind of zealous rebellion that, that Israel's used to seeing happen that would spring up behind a, a charismatic leader who would then lead a crowd to want to fight off Rome, and then Rome would just obliterate them. And here we go again, another failed, another false messiah. Jesus isn't trying to do that. He's not, that's not the kind of rescue he's bringing. Every day, okay, but this is all taking place, then they scatter. Okay, now, that, what we're going to see now is two trials. We're going to see the trial of Jesus, and they're going to see the trial of Peter. In that order, Matthew's going to unfold that, so I'll, I'll reveal that. Verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So the teachers and the elders of the law, they sent the mob. They're back at Caiaphas's place. He's got a big house, and he's got a big courtyard. And they're, so they're, they come back, and they're gathered there. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest now. We know from the book of John that before they go here, they actually go see the former high priest, Annas, his father-in-law who's supposedly been dethroned, if you will. Rome took him out of his, his seat and put somebody else there, but he's still got power and influence, and that's still happening. So the, the, the demonic um, uh, maneuvering that is happening to make this happen, it, it's just, it just runs deep. Verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance. Now that that's... Actually, pretty courageous if you think about it, because everybody else is just running for their lives. Peter actually wants to see what's going on, and, and he follows right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Now, we know from the book of John, one of the, somebody else is there that knows Peter that lets him in, because he has a relationship with the high priest family. Uh, many point to John, 
although it's a little unusual uh, that one of Jesus' disciples would be tight with the high priest, but it could have been somebody else, or it could have been like Joseph of Arimathea or even um, the, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Nicodemus, thank you. Nicodemus, those are the two that, that were in the Sanhedrin but trusted Christ before he even went to the cross. Thank you for that. Um, but we don't know. So we don't know who because it's unnamed. And that's why I kind of think it's, it's John because John wouldn't want to bring attention to himself. Uh, but it, what I, what's important here is that Peter gets in and it says he sits right, he goes right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards parentheses, that just arrested Jesus, close parentheses, to see the outcome. 59, the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Matthew makes it very clear they have one agenda, and that is to execute Jesus. They want to end whatever this thing is he's doing, and they believe and have justified the death of him is what's needed for the sake of the nation. And they have their agenda, and they're playing it out consistently. But they did not find any, that is, false evidence, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, quote, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Okay, well, that's not exactly what Jesus said, first of all. Um, and this is when Jesus was referring to the temple that's there in Jerusalem, it took 46 years to build, and Jesus said, tear it down and I'll build it back in three days. Of course, he was referring to the resurrection, right? Death, burial, resurrection, three days, that he would then become the temple. His body would become the temple, which is now who? The body of Christ is us collectively. We are the temple. God doesn't live in an ark. God doesn't live in the mercy seat over the ark. God lives in the hearts of his collective body of believers called the church universal, okay? In the Apostles' Creed, it says the Holy Catholic Church. That word Catholic means universal. Okay, so the universal church. That is the, the whole group of people in all of history who've trusted and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that's about. Okay, so um, he says then, so they didn't find any finally. Okay, verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men have been bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And if I had time, I'd take you to Isaiah 53, 7, where it describes in great detail, 52, 13 through 53, 12, it describes in great detail Jesus dying on the cross. So if you're, if you're into that, go back, look, write those references down. Isaiah 52, 13, 53, 12. In there, in verse 7, it says that he was silent, like a sheep that goes, you know, like sheep when they're sheared and when they're slaughtered. It, it, apparently, they don't say anything. They don't complain out loud, apparently. Jesus is not going to defend himself because that's not why he's here. He's here to let happen what's happening, and that is to let his, cre his creatures kill him. Those he created kill him. That's what he's here about, and that's what he's letting happen. Because he knows this is the only way to rescue humanity from our sins. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So the high priest makes it so he doesn't really have a choice. Because he's going to honor and, and obey. 
And so he said, you've said so. Now, he doesn't say, yeah, you're right. He says, you have said so, which is kind of a way to say, it's a nuanced way of saying, not like you think, but yes, I am the Messiah, and yes, I am the Son of God. And then he clarifies, and he says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which is actually a statement of his divinity, even though it's Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's his place of authority, and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's pointing to his second coming when he will come in the clouds and everyone on planet earth, believers and not, will see and hear his arrival. Then the high priest tore his clothes. So he, had, he would have had fancy robes on, expensive robes, hard to tear robes probably, and he would have just ripped down the Superman, right? He would have just pulled that um, and ripped it apart as a sign of grief or extreme dis, just disgust being dramatic. This is something that, they, that people did back then, and, and uh, I don't recommend it, but um, if you've got lots of extra clothes in the closet, go for it. All right, so he does that, and he says, um, uh, he has spoken blasphemy, okay, which is what he wants. He wants to be able to, ju- to charge Jesus with blasphemy and treason. Why do we need any more witnesses? And it would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, but he is who he said he was. Which is why he's able to walk this road, which is what makes his love so amazing, is that he is who he said he was and yet died for me and for you. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And we know from Mark that he was blindfolded, and that's why they're hitting him and saying, who hit you? And prophesy. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare to go through hell on earth and not give in to the temptation to save our skin? to make things better because of the way we want to feel. Watch and pray from a posture of full surrender to Jesus. It's so easy for me to stand here and say that. I realize that. But you all have heard my testimony already that I failed many, many times at this very thing. Now, here's what's encouraging to me, among other things. Flip back to to a page to verse last week's text. Um... 31. Then Jesus told them, he's talking to his disciples, and then he says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. He already knows it's going to happen. He prophesied here, it happens. For it is written, and this is why it's happening, because God said it was going to happen. He threw the prophet Zechariah, 13.7. I will, I will, I will, is it Zechariah? Yeah. I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I is God, shepherd is Jesus, sheep are his disciples. And then he says this, 32, but after I have risen, again, the disciples are not hearing this, but he's telling them, I'm going to a cross, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And after I have done that, you guys who have scattered and left me, we're going to go all meet up in Galilee. Fish and chips, baby. Right? 
That's what's happening. That's what's coming. It's, and, and they miss it, but it's so encouraging to me. God is faithful even when I'm not. So before you get busy beating yourself up, figuring out, okay, what kind of, um, what kind of abuse do I need to heap on myself to, to warrant God's forgiveness? First of all, you'll never have enough of that. Okay? I mean, there you people used to go to Rome and crawl up the steps of St. Peter's Cathedral with broken glass so that they would bleed on their way up so that they could somehow justify God forgiving them for their sins. That is not the God we serve. No, no. He forgives because we trust that what Jesus did for us on the cross was enough. And you go, that sounds too easy. It's not easy. Not when you're really thinking it through. Cheap grace, sure. You can play the, just say the words and just kind of move on as if nothing really happened. But if you truly understand what's happening, you realize that you are grieving your creator who sent his son to die for you every time we, we are um, unfaithful to him. Every time we sin. Every time we give in on our integrity. And so we're at this place where we have this choice to make, okay? So I'm going to live a surrendered life, yes or no? Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but I want to do that consistently. Well, I'm oftentimes tempted to not do that. So what do I need to do to correct that? Watch and pray. How do I do that? Okay, I'm not telling you anything y'all don't already know. You live here, and you live this out there. You saturate your mind and your heart on this so that it's more of a spiritual reflex when you're hit with the uncertainty. You know when you, you do that little doctor thing where they hit you, you sit there and they, he whacks you here and your leg flings out without you doing it? It just reacts. It's a physical reflex. I won't, Watch and pray builds a spiritual reflex so that what you do without even thinking, the muscle memory is trust and obey. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be good. All right, I want to I sh- leave you with the... I'm going to leave you with a poem today. You know it's, it's a rough day when I'm leaving you with a poem, okay? But before I read the poem, um, I'm going to, and I think we actually, I don't know if we have it on a slide or not, but I want to read this, this, these words from one of the commentators that I read. I thought he wrapped it up really well. His name is Kent Hughes, um, and uh, it comes from the commentary series Preach the Word in the, the Matthew one. He writes, in conclusion to this section of Scripture we just preached, Gethsemane, which is the garden, the olive, the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane was not a tragedy, and neither are our Gethsemanes. This does not do away with the wounds of the affliction in this life, but it is encouraging to see that behind human tragedy stands the benevolent and wise purpose of the Lord of human history. Life may be dark at times, tragedy may come, and at times the whole world may seem to be falling apart. <laughs> Just watch the news. The wheel may appear ready to crush us, but this is not the end. And then he ends with this awesome verse, Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then he adds, even in Gethsemane. Isn't that awesome? Oh, the poem. I tried, but I remember. Okay, this poem is written by, it's real short, E.W. Wilcox. All those who journey, soon or late, must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine but thine, who only pray, 
let this cup pass and cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. When all hell breaks loose, it is not because God is out of control and it's not for no reason. God doesn't waste a hurt. God uses pain, as C.S. Lewis has famously said, it's his megaphone to get our attention, to draw us in, to trust him deeply. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as we saw these baptism waters stirred with people who have drawn close to you by grace through faith, Lord, you call us and have called us all to do this. And many have said, yes, Lord, not yes, rabbi, not yes, martyr, not yes, good man, but yes, Lord. And so, Lord, it is our appropriate response to put our hands in the air as as if we were giving up everything that we have to say, I surrender all to you for you are worthy of my entire life. You gave your life to me so that I might live my life for you. Lord, I pray all across this room and through that screen that people would even now raise their hands and surrender to you, Lord, as they in their minds and in their hearts say, I surrender all to you, Lord, for you are worthy. I don't deserve what I have this gift that keeps on giving, this life that you've blessed me with, but you've given it to me to live for you. You've freed me from sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself, so that I might live for your glory. So God, I pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds in such a way that we might be found faithful to you. And when we are unfaithful, that we would remember that you're going to meet us in Galilee the risen Lord, to have fish and chips. We ask it in Jesus' name.